0: We have habits that are ingrained, if we've been playing for 10, 20, 30 years, that we think are part and parcel of the game and they're not. They're just the habits that we picked up. Uh, hab- habits that were from Arneson and and Gygax, you know, from, from the beginning of time. But we have to remember that they were originally war gamers and they had habits that they, you know, passed on. So in service of the goal, be willing to change habits, which takes time. It, it's not easy. If you
1: say.
2: My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, Rescuers. This is a bonus episode. I basically decided that uh, I wasn't going to sit on my Daniel Jones interview part two for any longer. It just seemed wrong to me to not do anything other than get it out there. So here it is. This uh, interview was originally recorded about two weeks after the first one and obviously there's been an awful lot of further development in the time between then and now. i just got to say that um, I'm so grateful to Daniel for involving me in his project and I hope that you'll enjoy the conversation you're going to hear. Just to be really clear, this was a conversation between Daniel and I that he um, was happy for me to record and then share with you. So it's not a formal interview in that sense. Um, We were having a conversation. I was trying to get my head around uh, what it means to be involved in otherworld immersion, seeking otherworld immersion, and I just thought you'd enjoy it. Daniel Jones is a self-confessed IT nerd, and he's the man behind the eudemonic Geekery blog. He hails from the forest Fields, southern Indiana, and he's there currently working on his Primeval Fantasy RPG. And so I guess we ought to move towards sharing the interview, except I did want to share just one call-in with you first. Check this out.
1: Hi guys, I'm about halfway through your podcast. In regards to is it with Daniel and this immersion, and I may be in love with this man. I'm just just putting that out there. I may actually be in love with this man. Um, I've got to listen to the rest, but I, he, he. What he's talking about so far, at least, is is almost in diametric opposite, almost like head-on clash with what I have experienced as the current understanding slash motivation slash want from role players today. Um, And I think it has a lot to do with this. um, Well, I'll get to that later because I'm about to run out of time. My God. It's... Oh, one minute up. I am very much... I'm still halfway through, but I have to get to this meeting. I'm very much... This is what role-playing is to me. It's about, you know, that immersion. It's about that connecting to humanity. It's about connecting to... Not the realism of the game, but the realism of the interaction. I think that's... Anyway. And I think that today's society has influenced role-playing to the point where we can't trust our GMs, so we can't let them have all the dice rolls. We can't trust the game or, so we must have complete control as players. And I'm not saying player agency is a bad thing, I'm just saying it's gone way too far. Almost, I would argue, to the detriment of this hobby, but I'm in the minority. I don't mind being in the minority, but I love this dude! And I love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. See ya, bye rescue um
2: and yeah this is like a follow-up conversation really and to be honest with you it's more as much for me as it is for anything else i really want to have this kind of conversation so about the practicalities really so two things i wanted to talk about today were the practical things you can do differently to kind of encourage other world immersion Mm -hmm. and the second question i had is kind of around how you discover the other world that you want to immerse yourself into, mm-hmm. because yeah. I kind of feel like that's a whole thing. Now, for me, that's a whole thing I've been wrestling with over the last sort of what, two weeks or so since we spoke, uh, it's been really bubbling around my mind. So those are the two things I want to talk about if that was okay.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I've told you before, I've obsessed over this issue, uh, for years, uh, because I'm deeply in love with fantasy and fiction and uh, you know role playing, and so yeah, I've, I've dedicated way too much uh, time, an embarrassing quantity of my life, thinking about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel similarly, yeah. so it's not that's not a problem. Yeah. Where shall we start? What would be the most logical place for you to start?
0: Uh, so, in thinking about this, uh, I was thinking uh, what I should have emphasized, uh, I don't know if I did or not last time, was that, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is art. Uh, It's like, you know, painting or cooking. You know, everything that I uh, think about is best thought of as a recipe and not, you know, a scientific formula. There is no science to guarantee any kind of a result. There's just, you know, an amalgam of influences that lead to, you know, a higher chance of getting a particular outcome, right? That's that's what yeah. all art and, you know, if we think about the food analogy, that's what all recipes are. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I believe that if you do X, Y, and Z, you magically get, you know, the other world immersion. Uh, it's not the way art works, right?
2: um yeah absolutely
0: so yeah um
2: i'd take that as red but i get what you're wanting to express that because maybe yeah anyone listening in might not you know yeah they
0: they might think that i i i have you know a magical chemical formula to make something go boom and that doesn't happen so (laughs) i mean uh so yeah um and also like everything is on a spectrum like whenever we come up with ideas of how we should run games, uh, it's always, you know, sliding this way and that, and it's always uh, changing to some extent. So you've got to remain fluid with it. Um, But I I guess, um, let's see, if I were to zoom in again on the three pillars of other world immersion, um, the first two are, you know, generic, Um, they apply to any setting that you want. So, I mean, in my case, it's, it's fantasy, but um, for anyone who wants to enjoy any of the other settings, the first, the first two pillars um, are what have to be, you know, zoomed in on. Right. So probably the most important, I would say is your methodology. Uh, It's probably more important than mechanics um, and, the most important tool there would be the unity of perspective between uh, players and their characters that they're running. So uh, all GMs keep secrets whenever they're running the game. They have to, right? Like who the bad guy is, where the bad guy is, et cetera. But uh, I think that's just a starting point. I think that, well, I think one of the reasons that we enjoy role-playing when we first start, aside from the the novelty of it, is that we really are in the dark. And, you know, when the, the first time uh, that we encounter um, a crypt or, you know, a monster or whatever, it's... Aside from the, the newness, oh, I've never done this before, there's also the, I really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I really don't know what this you know, zombie or this vampire or whatever can do. And so there's a way that we can recapture that. And that's by pushing the boundary uh, way back. So GM's keeping information uh, from the players at all times to maintain the unity of perspective uh, between you and the, the character that you're running. And I think that that applies to any perception. Like, so your character is, you know, searching for something or hiding. Uh, one method says, "Okay, you get to roll, and then there's the result, and now we know what happened." You totally abandon that paradigm in favor of the GM does all the rolling, and the GM tells you what you perceive and what you believe, and that simple trick. Um, which requires no like, there's no brain power there. That's a simple trick, and that has a radical effect on the the game. Uh, if if your character might get killed, if you know if he gets caught, and you tell me you're trying to be sneaky, and I'm rolling behind the screens for a myriad of possibilities, I'm actually generating you know that kind of angst inside you as a player. Yeah. uh because you don't know what the rules are what they mean or if i'm just throwing dice for no reason whatsoever right
2: if it helps let's just try and help me i think try and zoom in on an example so let's let's take stealth and mm-hmm. you know and all that so we're in a fantasy world and um there are some uh I don't know, let's, let's have generic orcs or something you know on guard duty and my th- my character my thiefy type character is trying to sneak past those guards are you suggesting then what happens is that me as a player i'm saying right okay i'm gonna my character's gonna crouch down and i'm gonna try and move from um i'm looking around here you know i can see a rock over there so i'm gonna try and move from this bush to that rock you know and in that in that to resolve that you would be taking the die roll behind the screen as it were so i don't actually know what happened in terms of my character's skill. Is that what you're suggesting?
0: That's right. I mean you would know within reason uh how much noise you believe you made, um, but you wouldn't know anything beyond that. You would only know that you're trying to be stealthy and and so forth. So that's right. All all of it happens behind the screen. And uh and this this is a recurring thing is that the GM uh, I think of as the artificial intelligence behind you know the program that's running, and the less that the player knows uh, about the mechanics, the better.
2: Okay, so that's the first sort of method trick, if you like. You're suggesting is the dice basically coming into the GM's hand?
0: That's right. With regards to anything perception oriented, um, yeah, that's right
2: you're looking to put the point of view in, entirely from the character's perspective and ask the players to, to come in and look through their eyes, as it were. Exactly. Rather than having a kind of hovering above the, the field kind of dynamic. Game. That's
0: right. The big picture of this methodology is um, anti-meta and anti-miniature um, wargaming. Like all of the yeah. all of the practices that fall in, into that uh, have to be rejected if you're wanting this other-world immersion uh, experience.
2: So we're basically another things. we you know we're going to have that player. Map. We're not going to have miniatures. We're not going to have um, a board, dry a dry white board with sketches of maps and stuff on, and all of that stuff would go.
0: No, um, I actually have miniatures behind the screen because I think it's important right. that everything is actually clear in the GM's mind. Um, and wow. so, I, as a GM, when I'm GMing, have all the miniatures, uh, especially with fights. Behind the screen, I know who's getting flanked. Uh, I know um, what terrain may be relevant. But then to the players, I'm just describing what they perceive. And I mean, this is another one of the unifications is that being in Melee, especially when your character um, is not a hardened warrior, it's just chaotic and terrifying. And and the, the idea that we play it like a miniature game gets in the way because we we're all cool and collected and we're looking down on the board and we say, Oh, I want my character to do this. Especially when they say, I want them to do this fancy, complicated thing. That's not the way fights are Mm -hmm. being in a fight is like pure adrenaline and pure chaos until, until you become a veteran fighter, then you can cool off Mm -hmm. and kind of detach. But, um, up until then, um, you just don't get that that same experience when you're playing a miniature war game and and for whiteboarding i um i do lots of clarifying uh examples on whiteboards so i don't get rid of those i just minimize Mm. them because i my belief is that they get in the way of the uh imagined experience
2: okay so is it the sort of thing where you might quickly sketch out like a a sticky type drawing of say like the layout of tunnels or something like that. Is that the sort of thing you would do? Yeah. Broadly. Like what you've just been through. That's right.
0: Broadly. I yeah. would do that.
2: Um, not necessarily scaled, not, you know, just kind of a quick, you know, what perhaps I'm, what I'm imagining here is the sort of what the character might be able to picture in their mind.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I would do some of that. Um, but also I, I mean, just with regards to, fantasy uh i don't Mm. i don't believe people in you know dark age settings think uh cartographically we think about you know what we see in front of us from the ground level and so um i mean obviously in order to keep things straight you have to use whiteboards uh sometimes they're very helpful i just try and minimize it completely so if the um, a lot of what we see, especially nowadays with dungeon crawls, where the, I mean, it's essentially video game, um, you know interface, right? You're looking down at the at the dungeon and you you have the choice left, right, and so forth. And I, I see why you would do that. I mean, it is fun. I think video games um, are you know great fun, but I, I think mm-hmm. it detracts from what we want if you're wanting um, the other world immersion
2: the first thing you're emphasizing then really strongly is this idea of trying to get the player to experience what the character is experiencing first of all by just kind of mechanically distancing the rules Mm -hmm. um you know from them so that they are then thrown into this descriptive and imaginative mode that seems to be what you're saying
0: yeah that's right um and Hiding as much uh, mechanics info as possible, I've discovered, really helps. So there's no... Uh, I mean, I myself have no monster manual uh, for players to ever look at to to see skills or powers. Uh, players never get to see uh, spell lists. Uh-huh. Even if you're playing a caster, you don't get to see spell lists. Right. Um, and my preference is that the player doesn't even... Uh, get to see you know their own particular spells. So if you if you do another compare contrast of here's the spell that does X amount of damage to your enemy, mm. and you're going to cast that. So if you contrast that with here's a spell that you know uh, generates this odd green, very small bolt of light. And it hits your enemy, and and they always scream in pain. Mm. But you don't know systemically what it's doing. Mm. Uh, that that right there, that that little move makes a difference. Um, so, the less you know across the board as a general rule, the less the better.
2: Mm. I mean, the first thought reaction I have um, is one of fear. I guess as a GM, okay, I got two reactions to it. I, I guess it would be worth just talking through. And the first is oh, my God, all the pressure's on me. Because um, I, I know I've been saying, especially recently, I've been complaining a lot about how players, you know, if you've been playing a while, why don't you know your stuff? You know, you, know what, you should know what's on your character sheet and you should know your spells and you should know, you know what I mean? I don't expect me to know it all. There's far too many rules in this game. Um, and that that is kind of like, obviously, you're turning that on his head. You're saying, hang on a minute. No, the players know nothing of it mechanically. You know, they what they know is what their character knows. So my first reaction was fear in that regard. And the other one is a kind of, can I actually pull this off? Can we do this? You know, there's that doubt about whether descriptively um, I can do that. So, I mean, what do you say?
0: Yeah. uh, To the first, um, that was probably my original thinking as well. Uh, But, you know, whenever... Uh, a player casts a spell um, let's say that harms an enemy mm. um, if I'm the GM I, I have to know what that spell is it's not like they're telling me something I don't know yeah. if if they say you know back to dd I cast magic missile yeah. so by the time you're 12, 12 years old everyone knows exactly how magic missile works Yeah. so I don't need the player to remind me how that spell works if I'm the GM and so it's it's actually not a heavy load, and for them to tell me I cast this spell that you know uh, that hurts my enemy yeah. or that confuses my enemy. And so, for me, that, that I don't think that's a problem for I don't think that's a problem for anyone because because it's not a new load of information. It's not like they need to carry something that I am not simultaneously carrying, right? Right. So. And it's also not everything. So for combat, I mean, I, I do believe you could take it all the way out to including combat. Now I don't do that whenever I'm GMing groups. I can conceive of GMing a solo campaign uh, where someone doesn't know anything whatsoever. So they say, I swing my sword. Uh, and then I do all the math and I describe what's happening now f- for a group. That would be too much for me. And I suspect that'd be too much for everyone, mm-hmm. like doing everyone's math. So um, I, I pick on spells in particular because for the fantasy genre, they are um, it's the one key that will sync the particular fantasy genre that I want is by magic being too understood and too categorized and too controlled, and so you know, obviously, I also am on a spectrum. I don't do everything. Combat has to the, the players have to do a, their own crunching and their own relaying of information. I, ideally, like if if I uh, if I had a computer running everything uh, as a GM, and this is actually something I've I've toyed with. And I think it's conceivable, I think it's inevitable, actually, for all combat to be resolved electronically hmm. and then relaying information to the players descriptively. Uh, I think that would be great. Uh, but until uh, a seamless, you know, program can be written that does that, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that.
2: Hmm okay
0: Um, I'm sorry and your second fear was which
2: can I describe it can you know can I pull this off actually
0: oh yeah Um, and you do anyway right so um, whenever you have someone hit with some kind of spell that that hurts them or confuses them or blinds them you are already describing it right Mm. and so uh, there's nothing there's nothing new there right
2: I guess not actually it's just that whole thought of like, you know, you're talking about like the, the stealthy guard thing. I guess that um, what I realize in, in, up front is in my head, I have this, it's almost like the the mechanics of this thing are like a crutch for imagination to some degree. You know as a sort of, mm-hmm. sort of support for it, I, I think I've talked about in the past how one of the reasons I like, um, what well, a lot of people call those crunchier game systems with kind of more detailed combat systems, for example, is because they become more visceral for me. You know, like if there's that kind of cut and thrust and you know the, the player makes an attack and there's a um, you know, and the, and the monster gets to parry, um, that creates its own sort of dialogue and description, if that makes sense. Um,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Whereas if that's more abstracted, um, you know, like it's this whole kind of one, like AD&D originally had this whole kind of one minute of combat, which is, you know, resolved in a D20 role against an armor class. And to me, um inevitably what happened is that became one hit with my sword. Do you know what I mean? But actually, I think... In terms of the original way that was intended, it was actually just meant to be kind of a minute of cut and thrust and everything else. And I've I've always felt that there's a lot of pressure there to describe that in an interesting and, and, and innovative way. But of course, turning it on its head, if actually my player is saying to me, "Right, you know, I'm going to swing my sword, you know, laterally at the at the orc in front of me, and I'm, I'm aiming for his, you know, his torso," and an attack roll is made. Um, you're going because it's descriptive. If I think about it, you're probably just going to generate that description as a priority, and the dice are going to be secondary to it. Is that is that kind of right?
0: Well, um, I, I would I would say that the mechanics uh, are as important as the description. Well, I mean, because we go back to the question of why do we need mechanics at all, yeah. um, and some people um, forego them. Um, completely. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some games that are so rules light and so narrativist, um, in their function that, that, (laughs) I mean, I guess we could say they virtually have no mechanics, but I mean, the problem with that is that it takes away some of the legitimacy of the feeling, right? right? So if I, if, if I feel as a player that you as a GM are just kind of, you know arbitrarily deciding an, an event that that takes something away from my immersion yeah so i'm not sure if that if that tangent uh answers your question or
2: not i think it partially does cuz i think there there are a couple of elements going on here and i'm going to come to the subject of trust i think um oh yeah but actually you know so i'm thinking though if i'm playing my i mean you know most recently i've been playing um ups with 3d6 so i've got my 3d6 and you know if the player is saying right i make my attack roll and okay so i've rolled a 14 it's probably higher than their skill they've missed and they can see that they rolled that they can see that um that's one thing when what you know the first the sort of first objection i guess then becomes okay so that's. i know you said you didn't do this for combat but let's just flip that into the sneak roll. you know i've got a chance of 12 i rolled a 14 i failed yeah i can see that now, in a lot of games, obviously, with those kinds of perception rolls, the GM would either you do one of two things. What I do is often have the players roll it in a tower, so they roll the dice, but they don't see the result, and I see the result. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of players, a lot of GMs may just roll it for them. Okay, um, and I've and the reason I went, for, I go for the tower is just to give them a sense of ownership over the die roll. You know, they don't, they see me not touch the dice, but of course, the first question is did I actually tell them the truth or do I actually react in a truthful way to what was rolled? You know, Because they can't see the result anymore. So that's the first step in trust. And of course, if that trust isn't there, I guess what we're saying is why are we sitting at a table playing a game together?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. If you don't trust uh, the GM, especially to be playing in good faith, why are you sitting in the same room with them? You obviously have someone who's, not a good friend, uh, and not someone you'd want to spend time with. So yeah, I mean, there's, it, it really is, uh, an all or nothing proposition when it comes to, uh, having a GM, right? Because even if you show all the rules, if the GM is intent on cheating or, you know, screwing the player, the GM's going to find a way to do it somewhere. So it really is futile to try and police the GM. Mm-hmm. You either, uh, sit down with a, good faith uh, agreement of here's what we're going to play and how we're going to play it or uh, you know my perspective is you don't play with them at all mm. why would you
2: yeah so the next step in that is gms who was called friendly called in the community fudging which i mm-hmm. don't I, you know personally something that i think in the past a uh, long quite a long while ago now i probably would have done this kind of stuff what i mean is a die roll. i'm making a die roll behind the screen and the result is mm, perhaps unsatisfactory in some way i don't know whether that is um the uh orc suddenly got too good at swinging in that combat or you know whatever um and you might just change the role, ignore the role, modify the role or whatever in your own way. Now, over the years, I've come to realise that that is, for, at least in my experience, a surefire way of undermining the trust at the table because I kind of figure that the players essentially always figure this out sooner or later. And then yeah. philosophically underneath that, I kind of come to understand that that actually, to my mind, affects their in, their sense of agency and in, in poss- quite possibly... Quite likely, their actual agency within the game, by which I mean the choices they make, become invalidated because you know there isn't actually this consistent set of mechanisms that are in play to adjudicate things. Now, of course, this is always intention because there's the, the, the tension between the GM when the GM is just going to decide what the outcome is because it's the most logical or reasonable thing or the obvious thing, and when you go to the dice. Um, but I always feel like when you go to the dice, you kind of have to stick with them. Where are you on this? I mean, what what are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm very much anti, uh, railroad of any kind. Mm. Um, and a lot of what I hear with railroading, it's, it's railroading. That's trying to sound benign, yeah, but, uh, and, and it probably is right. Um, It's not malicious, but Mm. ultimately, you're right. It takes away the sense, uh, the reality of agency. So, um, you know, the GM pulling punches or uh, messing with cause and effect, just ultimately, uh, I mean, unless your players are 12 years old, they're going to figure it out. Mm. And once they figure it out, it's kind of like, you know, if, if God is going to save me from a flood today, why isn't he saving me from a flood tomorrow? The better option is he doesn't save anyone from floods, which is to say, you know, the first time that you uh, start cheating as a GM, uh, it sets this precedent in the world and and the players know it. Uh, So you're right. If, if the players know that you're being legit which, you know, sometimes means letting very anticlimactic deaths to occur. Mm. They know that they're in a, in a cause and effect world. And, and knowing that strengthens the other world immersion. Anything else I believe damages it.
2: It's interesting because I think people are doing that because they think that's going to give them a better game experience.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's. I think the motivation, yeah, the motivation is not evil. Yeah. It's it's just misguided, I think.
2: Yeah, and that, and that's kind of, I guess, where I'm trying to get to. And it's this thing of like, okay, so we're trying to guide myself into and zero in on how can I kind of have a more satisfying experience if we're looking for this other world immersion? Because as we said in a previous discussion, you know, that that isn't necessarily the only goal you can have for a role-playing game. But it's the goal that we're right. seeking in this conversation, you know, to sort of right. have this sense of greater sense of otherworld immersion. All right. So, right. I bring bringing the dice roll behind the screen. I've got, they've got to trust me on that. But of course, actually, this might be quite awkward for some players, especially if they don't know what the rules are, because we've already established that we're not necessarily, you know, the fewer the rules they know, probably the better for the sense of immersion.
0: Well, I. I would say that the fewer exposures they have to what's happening behind the scenes, the better. So let's say, you know, um, your ranger or thief character is trying to spy on um, and maybe sneak into some place. There's a multitude of things that could be happening um, that your character would not know about um, that should always be hidden. Like, mm. let's say that this, this group of bandits is uh, very clever for whatever reason, and they actually have someone hidden in a pile of leaves uh, away from the entrance to, you know, whatever cabin or whatever. And so, uh, I mean, that's just one example. There's, there's all kinds of things that could be happening, mm. and the player should not be privy to any of them. Mm. The player should only know... I'm crouching right here and I'm hearing the wind and I'm hearing mutterings. And if you push in that direction, uh, it's, it's really enriching a a point on deception. I, I should, I should clarify is that, uh, I am pro, uh, GM deception in a, in a very particular way, which is before we ever sit down and play and, and, and by the way, I should emphasize that before any group ever plays together, they should have adult conversations about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. If people just think, Oh, I don't have time. I'm going to jump right in. That's just stupid. (laughs) Uh, People really should just have conversations about what they're doing and why they're doing it. But so um, with, with regards to deception, I think of a lot of GMing as playing poker. And once you played with a GM for a while, Or once you've played for a while, uh, any GM has picked up certain tells, right? Um, Like the way we talk. So, for example, uh, I might say to you, well, you believe that such and such. Mm -hmm. But then other times when I'm talking about things that happen to be true, I'll just state them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that rock will fall if you put just a few pounds of pressure on it. Mm -hmm. So one thing a GM can do to mitigate that is to uh, alternate and sometimes just speak matter of factly. If the character, let's say you have a character who is confident in Mm. a certain conclusion. So your character is confident that they could climb that particular, uh, hill in under 90 seconds. Mm. So I would just say, yeah, you can climb that in 90 seconds. Now I know that that's not true because I happen to know, you know, whatever about that hill. Mm. But um, it's important for the GM to actually selectively lie to the players in that context of, uh, you know, bef- again, before we ever play, uh, to say to the players, "I will tell your character exactly what your character is thinking or perceiving, even if it's not true." And sometimes I'll I'll use this verbiage, mm. and I've seen just great. Great payoff with that. Just, you know, th- this is not all theory. This is the way that I and and many others have been uh, gaming for years. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, this has real payoff.
2: Yeah, I was kind of thinking about uh, again. Depends a bit on the character as well. I was thinking about like um, in a group I have. I have a particular over, very overconfident character, which you know in the game we're using is is a trait that their character has on the character sheet as well. You know, they're overconfident. It's a disadvantage, um, and I guess that in that situation, you know, I'd be very much in my in my element if I was gemming that person to say, "Yep, you can do that in ninety seconds, no problem." you know got no problem with that whereas the character who's perhaps got on their sheet cautious you know maybe i'm gonna approach that slightly differently yeah maybe you could do that in 90 seconds you're thinking yeah it's likely you know uh, maybe i'll put it that way is that what you're suggesting
0: yeah absolutely yeah um and another thing that helps with all of this is and and this depends on your group um through the years what what we well, I mean, going way back. So when we're kids and teenagers, yeah. we used to do a lot of note passing, and then realize just how time consuming that could be. Sometimes we pull people off into other rooms. Yeah. I don't know how many people still do this, but uh, one easy fix for this is that everyone has headphones um, with you know music around the table, and <laughs> we just have someone slap on their headphones so I can talk to one particular person. And um, I mean, if your group is the kind who's willing to do that, that also has payoff uh, because um, not only do you not know what's behind the screens, you don't know what the other player perceives, believes, et cetera, unless that player can actually tell you. Right. And there are some instances, let's say that there's two of you Mm. who are being ultra stealthy. sneaking up on whatever you two can't talk Mm. at all you can't whisper or maybe you can't even see each other Mm. so um you know it's all contextual of course but uh i mean all these things pay off
2: okay so they're talking about the three pillars which are if i can think of two of them so we have got mechanisms and you've talked about like methodology what was the third
0: methodology uh, well, the second one is mechanics, and the third one is your particular set. Oh,
2: right. Of course. Yeah.
0: Were you wanting to move to mechanics? Uh,
2: we can. I was actually wanting to go to just the world, because my early question was, how do you sort of discover your other world, really? Um, I've been yeah. thinking about this a lot, I, just to give it some context from where I'm coming from. It's, you know, I really want to sort of get into an immersive um, fantasy world. And of course, given what we've already said, one of the first things I've probably got to do is be willing to kind of generate and create that world so that there is a knowledge gap, a massive knowledge gap actually for players. You know, that there's no point if they've read all the source books of the setting that I want to play in, Um, you know, that that's probably going to detract. I would imagine that's going to detract from the sense of other world immersion. So the first thing is, you know, discovering my world. So, What do I stall?
0: Yeah, um, that's that's a great question. And it would, it would, it cashes out uh, by having uh, discussions uh, before you ever sit down and play Mm. and say, here's all the things, let's look at the past um, 30 years of gaming or um, novels or fantasy movies, video games, and realize the direction they've gone in. Which is uh, modernic uh, fantasy, right? Yep. Uh, the people there are not—they're not really primitive. They're—they're they're not pre-modern. They are post Enlightenment people dressed up from you know a thousand years ago. Mm. So, um, if what I do myself is I have long explicit lists saying here's the way primeval fantasy should look in general. Yep. And I just have a breakdown of here's, you know, here's the world uh, in general. Here's the the here's how societies are generally set up. Here is everyone's worldview with regards to uh, the supernatural, mm-hmm. uh, which is if, if I had to pick one, that's the most important element to be changed mm-hmm. to get away from uh, because the way. Uh, I mean, my impression is the way that most fantasy games are played is to treat magic like any other tool. Uh, and there's nothing actually special or mysterious about it. I have I have this spell which does, you know this amount of damage. your sword does this amount of damage. It's just two different tools. And if that's your paradigm, then that's modernic fantasy. and that's fine if that's what you want. It's not what I want. Yeah. I want to move toward and really aspire to this other world feeling. And so um, my uh, my own advice for my own role-playing game is um, to list out not specifics of the world. Not It's not a source module. Yeah. It is a, kind of um, just a long list of here's what... Primeval fantasy looks like as distinguished from Modernic fantasy. Mm. So, World of Warcraft, uh, if I have to like point to things, and and we do because we're because the word fantasy now has lost uh, any specific meaning. It now means kind of a a huge ballpark uh, rather than a specific thing. So, World of Warcraft typifies the feeling of Modernic fantasy. Uh, everyone has these special abilities. Everyone has these spells, and you're running around with swords, uh, but you're living in the 20th or 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and and it's it's a long discussion before the game starts. Of here's how the world looks, which I I can I can go into if if you're interested in that. Um, were, were you were you interested in the specifics of the world?
2: I'm, yeah I mean to some degree I think that um, I'd like yeah. to talk about some of the I guess some of a touch touch point so for me I mean in what you're saying um, if I can just pick up on a couple of things like talking about the supernatural um, in my mind you know the worlds that I envisage um, wanting to play in the characters there take the supernatural seriously so one of I mean I'm going to use this and and tell me if we're talking across purposes but what i'm understanding is for starters if there are like you know deities you know pantheistic you know that typical pantheistic kind of um fantastic you know fantastic uh, god set up thing that's often turned up in a game but actually what what actually most players turn up with is a fundamental atheism um, or if they do have a belief in the divine it tends to be monotheistic in understanding nothing wrong with that don't get me wrong um but it's not yeah. the way in which you know as, as we talking about like people in our own histories past thought you know prior to really about three four thousand years ago the earliest um and within a sort of, we're talking about this kind of primal fantasy, what I would like to generate is this sense of uh, perhaps that more animistic culture where, you know, the the people see everything around them as alive and spiritual and dynamic. Um, Is that perhaps an example of what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, uh, very much. Um, And and it is a mixture of things. It's a mixture of the the methods and your mechanics. I mean, they all contribute to this. Mm. So, yeah, um, as I conceive primeval fantasy, uh, atheism and naturalism do not exist for any one period. That would just be asinine. They may as well deny the existence of the sun and and the earth Hmm. uh, because obviously the gods are involved, or spirits, or um, magical glades, or the fae. So, yeah, I'm very much in favor of keeping that feeling, uh, and that feeling gets generated by making it rare, um, Mm. making it, making, I should say, making overt evidence of the supernatural extremely rare to the point of being unheard of. Mm. However, at the same time, everyone is sure, uh, everyone knows that supernatural forces are at work, and are present uh, in in places all over the world. So if they know that if you go walking into the forest where no one lives, you are going to encounter some ancient spirits or uh, something, you know, uh, malevolent or a curse. Mm. And so they're they're afraid of it. Like everyone is in awe and fear. And you have to do things like getting rid of mage schools that doesn't exist at all. <laughs> Or if if you have temples, you could have temples. It it makes sense, but no overt uh, miracles or magic would happen there. There's no such thing as magic items for sale. There's no magic shops. Um, You you do all these to pull it in, to to take it away from the mundane world. And by doing that, you're increasing its specialness. And also the way that uh, people would react to any hint of the supernatural. Like I have a, a list of words that don't exist for people in primeval fantasy. And one of them is supernatural. Mm. That word has no meaning beca- or, or, or superstition, both of them, mm. because you're simple. Uh, th- those are words that we apply as modernists, uh, in our atheistic culture, uh, to point to something. But for these people that it's just reality, mm. like, a curse, a curse that's laid on a place is a real thing. And if someone has a bad stroke of luck, they're, they're not joking when they say that they're cursed. They believe that some spirit somewhere has laid some kind of curse on them. And they take that with deadly earnest. Hmm. So yeah, all, all of these things have to be distinguished from um, the World of Warcraft paradigm of well, that's just this kind of spell and it's doing this now and now I'm going to do this. Uh, that's that's board gaming and I, I love board gaming. I love miniature war gaming. That's all great stuff. Yeah. It's just not what I want when I role play.
2: It also strikes me that uh, characters in the world would take um, craft and uh, you know genuine skill, if you like, in the making of things and the creation of things very, very seriously as well. You know, like the making or forging of a blade, for example, would be a big deal, um, partly because the materials themselves are probably quite hard to get hold of and quite hard to to work with. But secondly, because that is an incredibly uh, skilled task to create. You know, it takes time and effort and expertise. And then on top of that, it's, it's sheer usefulness in helping you survive makes it something that you would respect you know i guess again it's the opposite to our very throwaway culture where we can manufacture things with relative ease you know the great there's obviously great expense um when we first come up with the technology but very quickly we we bring that to scale you know and again scale i guess is something as well that isn't present in a you know in a much more primal fantasy
0: yeah i i totally agree with that and having having um Smelting and, um, well, just just all of the high-level um, smithying that we think about, uh, having that be rare and having things like a sword uh, be special. Uh, I mean, kind of resetting the bar. So if we... M- what My preferred way of starting a character is that they live in a village with about 65 people. And what they know is that there are you know, five or eight other such villages around them. Mm. And that's your world. That's all, you know, and things like iron or uh, I mean, steel is unheard of, but even iron would be considered precious. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying.
2: So I guess I already know how to discover my world because it's a matter of imagining yourself into you know, something that is a lot more primitive
0: Yeah. And, and the effects of that across the board. So what we modernists do is we look for ways of exerting control over the world. Mm -hmm. So I think about ancient Rome, um, ancient Rome, they're modernists because they learned how to create stability and how to inch out. They didn't just race out to try and conquer the world. They moved out very methodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some great thinkers who figured out the tricks uh, and the advantages of, of modern methodology. And so that has to be gotten rid of if we're going for this primeval fantasy where if if a kingdom exists, it doesn't replicate you know, the, the 15th or the 13th century where people figure out how to assimilate and how to move out to keep getting control, mm. to keep uh, if people clump together out of fear and necessity. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that they have to become post enlightenment thinkers.
2: Okay. So mechanisms was the third pillar. Do you have any comments on that?
0: Yeah. Um, I would say that, I mean, obviously, it has a lot to do with which uh, which setting you're going into. Mm-hmm. At least for the for the case of the fantasy setting, we want the more restrained, the mechanics, the more human they are, uh, the stronger that bond is going to be. So, uh, if we think about uh, anime settings. People can, you know, leap through the air or leap off of, you know, five story buildings and kind of bounce around and they look cool and they keep going. Mm. Well, uh, okay, I get it. That's cool. It looks neat, but it's not it's not reality at all. So uh, I'm very much in the concept of restraint and realism, Mm. uh, but that doesn't mean that we should go the way of detailism, as I call Mm -hmm. it. Uh, that doesn't help at all. Uh, I mean, in fact, the more crunch you have in a system, I mean, that can be as uh, detrimental to the other world immersion as unrealistic rules, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because now your mind has gone toward all the crunch of of sorting through all these details to get a particular result. And that's not what you want, Right. You want kind of a smooth global realism without digging into detailism.
2: Well he's not mechanically. Yeah yeah you you get into the it sounds like we're trying to get into the detail descriptively potentially, but not worry about it mechanically is what you're saying.
0: Well I, I think that uh, what I aspire to anyway is to capture global realities and keep them under the hood. And then the, the rolling um, or, you know, the attempts of succeeding are going to be pivoting around that. It's like these, these rules can become an anchor, but we can't focus too much on, on the details of the mechanics during gameplay because it'll detract from your experience. Mm-hmm. Another big one would be to be closer to chess and further from craps. So in a lot of games, um, it is like craps where it's exciting to get this extreme role and this extreme result. Uh, I get why that's fun, but it's also counter to the goal because that's not the way life works. We're not in Roadrunner world, I hope, where these extraordinary things happen. If if those things are happening, it's no longer extraordinary. It's kind of like the supernatural is only special when it's rare and when it's hard to get to.
2: So you, you would, you would be looking for mechanisms that actually are less extreme, more, um, I guess more on a curve, if it was a dice roll.
0: Uh, I would make it more, uh, more skill dependent uh, rather than random. So if you go up against Bruce Lee, this is not a crapshoot. shoot. You, you're you've lost, mm. right? One-on-one in a ring. We all lose against Bruce in 1970, right? right? That's, that's, there's no die roll that's going to make me not lose. Right. (laughs) Even if I, even if I'm, even if I'm in Kung Fu, right. Uh, Bruce is, is the top of the one. He's he's not just in the 1%. He's in the uh, one in what a hundred thousand, you know, whatever. Um, So anyway, uh, that is to say that where, when you're skilled at something you are skilled at it and unless there are you know these mitigating factors uh, that are messing with your ability to function. You're going to succeed, and so I actually I don't want to call my my own system dice light, but it is not dice dependent. It's it's much more skill dependent and circumstantial dependent. Not really random is the best way to say yeah. it. Like I'm an IT pro, and it's not like. Uh, five percent of the time, I blow a computer up when I touch it. Right? Yeah. I know what I'm doing, and so unless there's a lot of weird stuff happening, uh, I'm going to succeed. You know, we drive to the grocery store; my car doesn't blow up. <laughs> it's it's not random, right? So, yeah. um, but yeah, uh, my 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 principle now through the years, I, I've been very guilty of detailism. Like, um, the old iteration of my system was, was way too detailistic because I, like a lot of people, uh, a lot of gamers, we, we think that the, the more mechanical detail that gets captured, the greater the immersion. And I think that's a mistake. Well, I mean, it could be true for some. Uh, I mean, again, this is, this is about recipes and cooking, right? So um, my attempt over the past two years has been to capture the global realities, let's say, of fighting and to find ways. I I keep asking myself through the years, how can I make this simpler and keep the the global um, truths of fighting? And so, I mean, that's been my quest as opposed to my old iteration a dozen years ago, which was highly detailed and it just took forever. I mean, I can't imagine people in 2020 uh, doing anything but laugh at my old combat system.
2: So what kind of level of granularity are you looking at at the moment then? I mean, let's imagine I've got a character with a a spear and a shield. How would that kind of, how would you recommend the sort of level of granularity there? I'm in combat, I've got a spear and a shield. Mm what What are you sort of talking about mechanically?
0: Yeah, so uh, I ended up recognizing kind of the core like vanilla combat and then a whole bunch of options that I encourage people into later. So um, if it's a spear per se and you're fighting, one of the obvious choices is to use your spear to hold someone at bay. But I mean, I, I guess that would be, that would be coming later. The primary would be just your attack versus your opponent's defense. And so I have, every time you're attacked, you have to defend yourself. Yep. And if you don't, you get gacked. Uh, and this happens for everyone. So if you have Conan uh, and he's just standing there and you attack him, he's going to die. Right. Cause fighting is about your ability to defend yourself. And then the, 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 the other options, the, the more granular options, which I enjoy these um, because they really put me in the seat of my character. So I have a spear, and if you have a sword, I know I, uh, I have an advantage if I use it properly. Yeah. And so you could try a, a skill maneuver called holding at bay, where you don't attack, you're keeping the head pointed at my chest. And if I try and race in without, you know, sufficiently deflecting your spearhead, you, you get to skewer hmm. me or at least stab me, you know, it's, it's relative, but with, with combat, I have skill being predominant and the die rolls being uh, secondary and the better you get the less relevant uh, randomness is uh, circumstance and skill are everything. So again, with Conan, if you have a Conan and he's fighting a group of warriors who have the, the wherewithal to actually surround him, then Conan's going to die. Uh, if, if you read the Conan books, he's, he's not an idiot at all. He's very careful when he goes into a fight mm-hmm. to maximize his chances. Um, same thing with Bruce Lee. If we actually successfully surrounded him and, and gangpiled him, he would lose right it's in that one-on-one where he always wins
2: yeah okay so you're talking about having that um yeah the the mechanisms of the game there that would support the idea that the the sort of general rule that you know a skilled character will succeed unless there's some kind of opposition and if there is an opposition that's where the dice might be used to help you adjudicate how well you come out of that situation
0: that's right um I have it, I have everything broken down uh, into uh, simple penalty levels, like the harder something gets, then the the mechanics will bear that out, like getting flanked, uh, being wounded, Uh, being wounded is a big one. My aim is to make it as simple uh, at the table as possible, while still capturing some of the realities uh, of combat. Or, or whatever.
2: Good stuff. Okay. So we've talked about some simple, straightforward changes to um, your methodology that would help with immersion. And you're suggesting really that's probably the biggest single factor.
0: Yeah, for whatever, uh, whatever setting you want. So let's say 1950s Batman. I want to play a character in a Batman setting, maybe Batman himself uh, in Gotham city. And so I have two questions. What is 1950s psychology that I can apply to the world? That's very different from here we are in 2020. And also what is Gotham city psychology? Mm. You know, this dank place overrun with crime and poverty, uh, you know, it's what New York city on, on steroids. Um, (laughs) So uh, yeah, I mean, whatever the setting is, uh, really think about it consciously and talk about it before you play it.
2: It occurred to me when we were talking about like the other world fantasy and you were talking about a primeval fantasy, you know, really stripping things down to, I don't want to use the word naturalistic because that's kind of almost, a that's a modern kind of way of thinking about it as well. But um, that um, very, like you said, physically believable, I guess, or realistic kind of, uh, world grounding it kind of occurred to me the question whether actually if you were playing in a science fiction setting whether it's a, it's even possible to get the same level of immersion as you would have in a fantasy you know if we're surrounded by that technology and we are in a world which is postmodern or modern in its way of thinking and is atheistic and all those things you know is it possible to be immersive within that
0: yeah, I would say so. I would say if you look at the handful of well-written Star Trek episodes, I mean, most of them were silly and badly mm-hmm. written. I mean, I, I grew up on Trek. I'm allowed to say that. I grew up on Spock, right? But yeah, so you have you can have realistic psychology and even physics when you have things like uh, transporters and phasers. But, I mean, it becomes trickier. I think it becomes a a harder task. I mean, uh, you probably already know that the transporter only came into existence because uh, they could not finish the model for the shuttlecraft in time. And so last minute, they had to create this thing. Well, that thing they created really made uh, some problems for them. Every episode, they had to... Either skirt around or come up with some reason why the transporter doesn't solve the yeah. problem, right? So um, I agree that it is harder. I think it's possible, um, but my own experience, uh, and this is subjective, is that in the in the primeval fantasy setting, you can have the the deepest kind of immersion. Yeah. But you know, that's just that's my that's my palette, right?
2: I wonder if like with science fiction, you have to go harder. You know, if we're going to use those genre terms, you know, you might have to just go harder scientifically, um, which may be difficult if you're not necessarily that well scientifically versed. You know, it's, um, I guess, if you're going to the realms of fantasy, uh, you know, we all have a common understanding of the basic physics of this planet. But as soon as we start thinking about being in zero gravity or in, you know, on another world with one third gravity, I think that becomes increasingly difficult um you know to imagine and picture yeah. and and i guess if you're like a particle physicist or an ast- you know, astrophysicist or something maybe you've got an advantage over the rest of us i don't know
0: yeah uh you're right that would be a lot of work and um i mean there's probably groups of uh science geeks out there who have really fulfilling uh role-playing sessions that the rest of us would be lost at so
2: it does make me wonder as well, though. The sort of last question I wanted to pick up on, really, uh, this time out, was to sort of think about this relationship between what the character knows and what and the character's skills and the player's knowledge and skills, because there's this ongoing debate in gaming circles about the what the degree to which a player's knowledge or a player's actual expertise in real life, um, you know, can be brought to the table. Really, I suppose. Now I'm guessing that the answer to this is fairly straightforward because you're probably going to say your character doesn't know that. But am I putting words in your mouth?
0: No, you're absolutely right. If you have a character, uh, if if you have a player who knows something that the character doesn't, then yeah, they're they're not allowed to use it at all. Um, And I mean, the GM has to work around that. So. You know i have i have friends who are excellent at construction and and therefore uh how to take things apart yeah i mean there has to be player restraint in lots of areas so the the work of, of this methodology is is not just on the gm you have to have uh agreement before the game is ever played that you're going to do whatever to stay in character
2: Great. So, uh, how can we sum all this up? What would be your top te- uh, top three kind of uh, quick points to summarize all this? Then, what can we can we take away?
1: Uh, let's
0: see. I guess that it would be that if if your group really wants this thing, uh, this other world immersion experience, to sit down and have conversations about what that means. So that's number one. And you know, to have an agreement that that this is the methodology we're going to be playing with, which means you don't get to either roll the dice or, you know, if I, I think I've done what you did in the past too, where you had the player roll, uh and, but they don't get to see it, but then everyone kind of agreed. What's the point of that? Uh, so anyway, I guess the bottom line is have the conversation uh, and then come to agreement of what that means, which means the GM gets to know things and and doesn't tell you exactly what's happening. Uh, That'd be number one. Number two, I guess, would be to go through and be willing to change all of your habits if if you Mm -hmm. need to. And we have habits that are ingrained if we've been playing for 10, 20, 30 years that we think are part and parcel of the game and they're not. They're just the habits that we picked up. Uh, have habits that were from Arneson and, and Gygax, you know, from, from the beginning of time. But we have to remember that they were originally war gamers and they had habits that they, you know, passed on. So in service of the goal, be willing to change habits, which takes time. It, it's not easy. Um, uh, number three would be an explicit, uh, explicit conversations about the setting And how that changes things. So for my particular goal of primeval fantasy would be uh, look at the long list of differences between uh, modernic fantasy like D&D and what we're aiming toward here, which is a a very different. uh, It feels radically different Mm -hmm. uh, because of all the changes that we're implementing. If I had a big three, I guess it'd be those three.
2: Brilliant. Thank you, Daniel what do you think yeah i think so and i think like obviously um that's very much driving from the world the setting isn't it It's saying you know the world comes first the the sort of uh yeah the fictional construct if you like comes first and Mm -hmm. what we have to do is everything else has to serve the goal of helping us enter that other world
0: yeah yeah absolutely
2: last question then was do your players have character sheets in front of them
0: yeah they do uh, we've talked uh, about the idea of them not having anything in front of them and again I think that that could only be manageable uh, in a solo campaign I can envision a solo campaign where the player is told uh, certain things about themselves and and their relative skill like you're the fastest uh, sprinter in your village. Mm compared to here's your sprinting number of uh, a 61. But, you know, if a GM has to do all that for a, a large group of players, uh, I don't think I could manage that. I've never actually tried it. So to your question of, uh, yes, they do have character sheets. They do have combat sheets tracking their wounds and their penalties and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Because, I mean, you can't... or our perspective is you can't go without uh mechanics Mm. if you do that it's 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 too subjective it's too arbitrary and it wouldn't serve our our goal
2: yeah it it remains a game after all daniel been brilliant to talk again i'm so conscious of time so we must bring it to a close i suppose any last words
0: uh no this is all great stuff um do with it uh whatever you think's best i think i mean this is the stuff that i love uh and i know lots of other gamers who are very much in a similar mind so this is all golden this is all golden for me yeah it's for me too yeah great talking with you
2: And that's it for the second conversation. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Roleplay Rescue. Massive thank you again to Daniel Jones for coming to talk about more Otherworld Immersion with me. And also talking about his own primeval fantasy RPG system in just a teeny bit more detail. Don't forget, because we're an anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. And if you've enjoyed listening to Daniel, please consider sharing the episode on social media. And if you want, you can look him up yourself. Daniel's available at Primeval Fantasy on Twitter. Oh, and a massive thank you to the caller at the start of the show, Paris. I love that message from the car. Fabulous stuff, man. And that's it for today. I'm Joe Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. And I'll see you again next time. Game on.